I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Cool Cats and Kittens edition. It's Wednesday, April 1st, 2020. On today's show, we couldn't not do it. Tiger King is as big a streaming sensation as any I can really recall. We discussed the Netflix true crime documentary about the incestuous, possibly murderous subculture of big cat breeders and private zoos. And then this week's comfort culture pick, it came down to me. I picked the greatest movie of the 21st or really any century. That, of course, is Paddington, too. And then finally, we talk about iHeartRadio's Living Room Concert for America and James Corden's Home Fest as part of a larger discussion about celebrity culture in the age of pandemic. And I want to say, as always, our audio may be a little dicey. I think we're going to be improving it very soon. And we will have two sets of guests today. We're going to start with Daniel Schrader and Sam Adams. And then later in the program, I'll be joined by Julia and Dana. All right, here we go. Tiger King is a seven-part docuseries on Netflix. It defies quick summary, but if I were absolutely forced to get it down to a single description, and I, this is very negotiable, I'd say it's an expose of the subculture of the big cat, wild cat breeders and zoos, but that doesn't do it justice. But it, it does focus on one character above all, the so-called Tiger King, a.k.a. Joe Exotic. Self-described as a gay, gun-carrying redneck with a mullet, he runs a for-profit wildlife menagerie, the kind of place where you can cuddle tiger kittens and have your photo taken with big cats. His is down in Oklahoma. But this is this is really only where the crazy starts, and it, who knows where it ends. I've never seen anything quite like this. The howls of incredulity and, I guess, sort of sickening delight that came from the other room when my kids were watching it, I, I I had to watch it. From the premise of the show, we get very quickly to murder, murder for hire, polygamy, suicide, and what amounts to s- slavery, and yes, even what appears to be a sex cult, not to mention a lot of filmed and implied animal abuse. Joining me today are Sam Adams, who is a senior editor at Slate. Hey, Sam. Hello. And... Uh, Podcast producer extraordinaire, Daniel Schrader. Hey, Daniel. Hey, Steve. Uh, Dan, is it true that your Twitter handle is Rough Schrade? That is true. I thought wins a lifetime pass as far as I'm concerned. That's great. Thanks. I'm very proud of it. Uh, I This is, there's so much, this is such a banquet of weirdness. I think we dispense with the pleasantries and just dig right in. Let's just listen to a clip. Where do you want to start? I guess at the beginning somewhere? It was a crazy beginning. Mm. Crazy. What was the beginning? <laughs> Animal people are nuts, man. And I might be one of them people, I don't know. But they're all half out there, man, they're crazy. You know, the monkey people are a little bit different. Okay, good boy. You know, they're kind of strange, but the big cat people are backstabbing pieces of shit. A decades-long feud comes to a bizarre end. Tiger King stands accused of trying to have a woman killed. You know, there's not every day that a zookeeper went to prison for murder for hire. So I'm sure, I'm sure y'all got a story to tell. Prepaid call from 
Jelly Sonics. An inmate at the Grady County Jail. You know what they threatened me with? 79 years. I went to work every day prepared to die in a tiger cage. Dying doesn't scare me. At all. Oh man, Sam, I'm going to uh I'm going to start with you. I don't know that I quite did this justice. I don't know that anyone can, but your marvelous review came very close. It was beautifully executed. Maybe start us off by talking about something I didn't really mention, which was Joe Exotic and his relationship to one Carol Baskin. Well, it's it's funny that you referred to this world of uh, big cat breeders as incestuous in your interest, Steve, because that I think is one of the few sins that this series actually <laughs> doesn't encompass. Um, although there's a lot that left out, so maybe maybe that's just uh, in the outtakes. But yes, Joe's uh, self-described nemesis, um, to whom he eventually goes to quite kind of mentally unbalanced lengths to discredit, uh, is a woman named Carol Baskin, who runs an animal sanctuary named Big Cat Rescue in Florida. Uh, she seems to be, uh, you know, from the series or certainly from some of the other reading, and kind of, you know, a fairly mild eccentric, certainly by the standards of this series. Um, she is a kind of amateur crusader, um, but does seem to regard Joe Exotic uh, not illegitimately as someone that she wants to put out of business. He uh, makes a lot of his money off what they refer to as cub petting, which is the practice of kind of breeding young tiger cubs for the purpose of letting people take selfies with them. Um, What happens to those cubs after they get too big to be petted is one of the things that kind of remains cloudy in the documentary, but it seems that they're either sold off to, to private collectors who probably don't have the resources to, to house a tiger or um, possibly euthanized or, or something worse. Um, so Joe just kind of, this woman just drives him crazy. Like in a lot of the, in a lot of the series, he comes off as this kind of lovably quintessentially American eccentric. Um, he has a kind of, you know, country music career. He's got a web streaming series. He's trying to get a reality series made about himself. Um, at one point he runs for president. Um, he's just a, a kind of classic huckster with what seems like a genuine love for these big cats, but he really becomes obsessed with Carol Baskin. Um, he kind of is shooting what seemed like these lighthearted web videos, and then he starts, just goes off into this rant about that bitch, Carol Baskin. Um, he'll be you know, shooting a segment for his show. At one point he has a blow up doll with her name on it that he like stuffs a sex toy in her mouth and then shoots it in the head, like with a real gun. Um, So he, that's the part where he starts to seem not just kind of lovably eccentric, but actually possibly dangerous. And that's something that the clip we heard, which is from the first, you know, two minutes of the show, it tells you right at the beginning, this is going to end up in a a murder for hire plot with Carol Baskin as the target. Um, She's interviewed, so we know that didn't succeed. Um, but it takes a good, you know, four four hours, six episodes to kind of get to that point. Right. And Daniel, this thing is just overstuffed. I mean, you could have completely, almost completely eliminated even the Carol Baskin story, and you'd have, by any standard, a pretty riveting um, reality TV show glimpse into a very bizarre subculture. Um, there are all kinds of other ancillary characters. I mean, let's just begin with the fact that uh, Joe Exotic is gay. He's uh, uh, married not to one, but to two men simultaneously. Um, His own relationships are so deeply involved, idiosyncratic and and, um, exploitative, really, 
that they alone could have been the subject of a of a documentary. Oh, definitely. So I have to admit, I've watched this whole series twice now. I watched it again all last night um, in preparation, and I had forgotten how many people are even in this. Every time we meet a new person, I'm like, wait, no, they who are they? Where do they come from? Why are they here? There's like the um, there's the exotic pet drug kingpin. There's Carol Baskin, who's basically a Marion Williamson of big cats. Um, There's Bhagavan Doc Antle, who is a uh, basically cult leader, big cat breeder, um, etc. But yeah, even if we had just focused on Joe's relationship with uh, the men in his life, that would have been a fascinating um, exploration. We have we when we first meet Joe, we learn that he is gay and that's kind of a selling point about his eccentricity. And he has two husbands. One of them is a uh, guy who's been working on the working at the zoo for a while. And then the other one is a newcomer who is kind of just a young broy skateboarder type. And it's it's actually interesting from a gay perspective to see their relationships play out on screen because from my perspective, it's very clear that Joe has a kind of trade relationship with these men. I, I would call them trade, kind of like the the joke on my Twitter handle that you mentioned earlier, rough trade is a play on rough trade, um, if you didn't know. But um, trade is a gay term basically referring to men who are pretty much passing as straight, but will indulge in homosexual acts, usually for uh, trade, usually for things like drugs or money, things like that. It's very clear that um, Joe keeps these men in relationships with him through drug use, typically meth. And um, so it was it was very sad, but it was also very interesting to see this kind of rural gay relationship play out in ways that you don't necessarily see, but definitely occur. Hmm. And there's some indication that neither neither of his husbands may be actually gay. They seem actually kind of uh, uh, other sex oriented when they're not engaging in this trade with Joe. Oh yeah, definitely. That's that's one of the like emblems of trade. Really, is that oh, okay. they are um, they're down to fool around with guys and uh, as like a um, exchange of services, but they do still consider themselves straight, consider themselves um, to be attracted right. to women, et cetera. So. Right, right. right. One, of, one of the things that's fascinating to me about this series and this character is Joe is, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, he is sort of a classic redneck in a lot of ways, um, but he's so kind of unabashed about his sexuality, which is something that is doesn't kind of fit the stereotype here. Even when he's doing what sound like these country songs that are kind of meant to sound like things that could go on the radio, although, of course, they never will. Um, I'll just take that again, three, two, one. Even when he's doing these country songs that sound like they're meant to go on the radio, even though, of course, they never will, um, the love songs still have unabashedly gay lyrics in them. So he's kind of the opposite of of closeted, and it's something really fascinating to consider in the context of this private zoo in rural Oklahoma. Yeah. I'm not sure that I share with Sam uh, the inclination to find anything about Joe endearing. I mean, maybe tragic, but, um, you know, but maybe that, that, that would be the one place I would look, which is his, his desire to simultaneously be kind of an er authentic American, like deeply Southern, you know, you know, his accents, totally forward part of his whole personality, a a carny, a huckster, 
um, uh, a gun-toting Second Amendment libertarian fanatic um, and completely out there uh, uh, gay. Um, and there was this moment where I was, here are the notes that I, I mean, I, I watched this thing with my jaw on the floor and my notes read as follows. What is more American than driving in your pickup, your Bengal tiger in the passenger seat, your two husbands on speed dial and singing along to your own vanity project country music song. And there is something kind of omni and ultra American about that scene somehow um, which made me provisionally love him for all of about two seconds. My other notes were, this is Elmore Leonard on peyote. I'm moving to Portugal. Skip credits next episode. And I couldn't stop watching it, but I wasn't sure by the time I got to the end of it that I was enhanced by having watched it. And that's, Sam, something I'd like you to speak to a little bit. I felt a little... You see a lot of animals and a lot of human beings being badly, badly abused. Uh, in the course of this, and at a certain point, the um, viewer, I think, at least, I can only speak for myself, I started to feel implicated. I, I thought the voyeurism that I was experiencing, the, the voyeuristic joy, joy that I had experienced maybe the first 90 minutes of this had really soured by the end. Yeah, I mean, I think this thing, thing is kind of an ethical nightmare, um, and it is, just from a kind of documentary craft point of view, a complete mess um, that intro that we heard starts off in this very kind of ersatz, uh, thin blue line vein, compete with that sort of knockoff Philip Glass score. Then five minutes later, we're kind of looking at this filmmaker, Eric Good, who's talking about his quest to track down Joe Exotic. And you think it's going to be that kind of documentary where we follow the crusading filmmaker. Then that gets thrown out a few minutes later, and it just turns into more of this tabloid TV style uh, story. But it's all over the place. I, I will take the filmmakers, Eric Good and Rebecca Chaiklin, at their word that they started off, got into the story as an investigation of animal abuse. And that was their primary concern. And that's one of the reasons that I kind of come down so hard on Carol Baskin is even though she considers herself kind of an animal rights activist, she is kind of still running this amateur private zoo. And as you know, they disapprove of that as well. But I don't think anybody comes away from the series thinking that it's a show about animal abuse and that definitely got lost pretty profoundly in the edit. You know, this is a freak show. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, it's incredibly gripping in a lot of ways. It is something that you can't look away from. And I think, I mean, this is something I flagged when I saw the first descriptions in the trailer a couple months ago. I was like, I think this is going to be kind of a big deal. This seems like something people are really going to consume. But I do think landing at this particular moment where a lot of people are stuck inside real life already seems so crazy. And this is one of the few things that is actually crazier than that. I think that you can't underestimate the extent to which that plays into the phenomenon that this, that this thing seems to have become. Mm. Dan, where did you come out in the end? Yeah, I I was really disappointed with how um, little was how little they focused on the animal rights of it all. I, there were some very, there were some specific points that I really did appreciate though. I, that moved me and made me um, uncomfortable and such as the scene in one of the first episodes where they're talking about the guy who released a bunch of animals on his wild, on his farm and they got out. And so then the police and everybody had to just start killing a bunch of exotic animals that had been released. And that was a really grim moment. It, it was also, weird to hear these um all these breeders and um big cat 
wranglers talking about how the importance of preserving endangered species is to breed them and and things like that. And how are we supposed to um, propagate the species besides making them breed and making more of them? And that uh, they couldn't understand how Carol would view them getting their uh, cubs pet or interacted with people as animal abuse because they're saving these animals and they're like raising money to save these animals yet not understanding that the animals that they are using to exploit are themselves being abused. And so it was this weird, like every 30 minutes you might be reminded that animals are in this story, but it kept like forgetting that they were there or forgetting that they were the focus point for these people. And I think that's what happened to Joe. Joe forgot that the animals were there. He forgot Mm. that they mattered and he became the most important just the way that in this documentary, he became the most important, not the animals. Yeah. I mean, I remember getting to the end of, or not getting to the, getting to the end of the first episode of cheer and thinking what, what there's a certain kind of, damaged and semi-orphaned or outright orphaned person who's attracted to cheer it is nothing like the personality type that appears to be attracted to these big cats. There is a moment right at the end where you see a film clip of a younger Joe saying these animals belong really only in Asia and Africa. There's, there's a younger version of himself seemed to understand that the only way to d- dignify the existence of these magnificent creatures was to have them in their native habitat. The, the, Tra- tragedy of this to the extent it is a tragedy is that younger person gets overtaken by this persona uh, that in order to sustain itself and keep itself in a style to which it had become accustomed requires enormous amounts of exploitation my takeaway from this is i kept thinking i am watching human beings do the thing that only we do which is prey upon members of our own species right and not only am i watching that i'm watching it well these people who are the biggest shit bags i've ever had to spend that many hours with are trying to ennoble themselves by association with these majestic majestic animals and i thought that that contrast was was just sickening and at the end of it i wished i hadn't seen it i've actually told friends of mine i know that there's a lot of hype around this i'd skip it i mean i just to the extent that there's despondency out in the world i i wouldn't I wouldn't tell someone not to watch it. It is it is in its own way quite gripping. Um, and I don't object to it ethically. I don't think the filmmakers are in any way are ethically compromised. In fact, they may have done a service by bringing this world uh, in front of us because as of now, there are more captive cats in the United States than there are in the wild in the world, a revolting fact. And the government absolutely refuses to regulate it. They will not pass some basic legislation regulating this world, which is also revolting. So it's not that I have an ethical problem with it. I just think as a mood enhancer, this thing, it's gonna it's gonna be escapist for some people. For me, it wasn't. I'm not trying to moralize it, but that's where I came out in the end. I gotta agree with you on that. Um, I, there was one uh, beautifully moving moment, I thought, at the end of, I think, the final episode where Joe, before they do the reflections on the cats being in captivity, where Joe, it seems like it's a later clip of him, uh, his chimpanzees who have, I believe they're chimpanzees, who have been living next to each other in a in captivity um, in his enclosures for so long. He finally brought them to a, um, reserv- a, a reserve or something in Florida, and they were able to come together and hug and hold each other. And he kind of had this moment of reflection of, oh, have I been... Have I been the one to keep them from this love that they clearly needed from each other? Have I been the one really like hurting them the most? And so I feel like really this documentary is for the people who it's who are in it. That's who needs to see it the most. Yeah. And um, 
I, I really have to agree with you that I didn't find it this like happy, uplifting, fun escape thing that I thought it was going to be. When I saw people talking about it on Twitter, when I heard people talking about it on podcasts, it was like, ooh, great. I'm going to love this because I love watching reality, messy reality shows like The Real Housewives, like Love is Blind. But this had a like darker twinge to it that um, really didn't lighten my spirits the way that it seemed to other people because there's a, a level of suffering that happens on some in some uh, reality productions, whether it's reality shows or documentaries that I just really can't find an escape with. Mm. All right. Well, let's leave it there. It's Tiger King. It's on Netflix. And uh, I guess check it out or, or don't. All right. Moving on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, so for the following segments, we're going to have the usual lineup. That means, of course, Julia Turner, who is the deputy managing editor of the LA Times, is joining us from LA. Julia, how are you? Hello. Nice to see you. Yeah, good to see you. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic of Slate. Dana, welcome back. Hey, Steve. Good to be here. Paddington 2 is a 2017 live action plus animation comedic film. It stars Ben Wishaw. As the voice of Paddington, the little mischievous talking bear who's come to live with the family in Windsor Gardens in London. He's a beloved mascot, not only of the family, but of the whole neighborhood. Really, Julia, of the whole world. We'll get to that. Um, <laughs> in this installment in the series, Paddington wants nothing more than to purchase a little pop-up book featuring scenes from London uh, for his aunt, uh, only to be framed for its theft and sent to jail where he befriends Many of the inmates who turn out to be big softies on the inside, you'll be shocked to discover. Uh, they then escape, and there are other related capers. Uh, the movie star Sally Hawkins, Hugh Bonneville, it's got an amazing turn, I think, by Hugh Grant as the villain, Phoenix Buchanan, a has-been thespian. Um, I love this movie too much almost to even talk about it, but I'll do my best. But first, let's listen to a clip. Looks to me like you've got yourself a fine pair of orange squeezers. Orange squeezers. Tomato, lovely. Yes, spot on. Now we have to be very careful with knives. Aunt Lucy said that sensible bears. Where on earth did you learn to use a knife like that? You don't want to know. Well, it's jolly good. (laughs) Now, now. Right, it's time for the sugar. That's what turns the juice into marmalade. What? Oh, a lot. Same again. Ah. A squeeze of lemon, a pinch of cinnamon, and just a bit more sugar. Well, is it good? Oh, it's too soon to tell. We'll only really know once it's set. Uh, let me return to my script. Uh, Julia, we're all, we're all giggling. Is it along with the movie or at my expense? I mean, really, this boils, this whole segment, Julia, boils down to one question. Are you alive or dead inside? Go ahead. 
Happy to report alive based on my judgment of the uh, implication of that question. Somehow we didn't discuss Paddington 2 when it came out, despite the fact that everybody universally said it was freaking great. Well, you know why we didn't? Because the, the Bizarro Gab Fest did it without us on a week that we weren't, none of us were in. Oh, so it was, it is in the Gab Fest record, but, but none of us, mm-hmm. not, okay. Um, and we so enjoyed talking about non-timely movies last week when we spoke about Big Night that I think we decided we're going to continue in this vein of um, prescribing quarantine comfort food to one another. And Steve prescribed this, and I don't think anybody resisted the dosage. And um, it's even better than I'd heard. It's so good. And I couldn't, my ass Oh my God, show. I'm so happy. I'm so, I don't think I've ever been made happier in the history of the Gap Fest. Oh, I mean, at least I hope you weren't anticipating me hating it or something. I mean, it's just so lovable, like a cuddly teddy bear. And um, my stink children, beloved as they are, as we've discussed, don't like watching movies and they refuse to watch this with me. So I watched it like as an evening pastime with my husband. And I think I'm going to make them watch it this weekend because it's just so delightful. And the stakes, though high, are, I think, tolerable for their tender little brains. So thank you for making us watch Paddington, too. Uh, thank uh, thank you for ratifying my entire worldview. Dana, this movie has a real distinction, I think, which is that it is the only film with its number of reviews, 238 reviews, with a 100% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> it, is the, it is the highest rated film in the history of the site. If you go against that grain, you are dead to me forever. What did you think <laughs> of this movie? I mean, the numbers prove it. Best movie of all time. Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> has its number. I mean, as a film critic, I feel guilty opining on this movie, having never seen the first Paddington and not even having seen this the year it came out, which was last year, correct? 2017, but... Ah, 2017. I remember the year that it came out in 2017 that all my fellow film critics were swooning over it and saying not only that it was one of the best children's movies or animated movies or half animated movies, as we'll discuss, of the year, but one of the best movies of the year. And with my dumb, completest film critic guilt, I thought, oh, but I must not see it until I have seen Paddington 1. So look at me three years later, not having seen either movie until last night. And in fact, I just want people to know it doesn't at all depend on understanding anything about the first movie or the Paddington books. It's a complete standalone. And it really is a children's classic. My daughter wouldn't watch it with me either, Julia. And I think it had to do with her just being grumpy about her first day of online school having started and had having not had a very good day and really just having it sink in that we are in this sucky quarantine situation into the indefinite future. But I too am going to make her watch it because it's such a joy infusion. And I want to try to figure out with you guys why it is not sentimental and sticky sweet. I mean, yes. there we were all just now cooing at the adorable mm. bear. Ben Wishaw does his voice. Ben Wishaw is so adorable that I want to miniaturize him and carry him in my shirt pocket at all <laughs> times. And yet this movie has nothing gooey or sentimental about it. I feel like it earns its tears and its laughs. And it has a lot of, well, especially in the prison scenes, it has a lot of sort of, they're not at all dark jokes or cynical jokes. It's a very hopeful movie, but it has some sort of saucy, cheeky moments that are, you know, just uh, that have enough sort of tartness laced into the sweetness that you just you it's like marmalade tart and sweet like marmalade (laughs) movie marmalade yeah i mean you have to balance the flavors even in a sweet thing right i mean or else it's cloying and and gross and 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 they did it they did it perfectly i mean i i 
I, I have a hard time being analytic about this film, but I'll try a little bit. I mean, I think, first of all, it's in, ingenious. It's production design is beautiful. It is, it, it, a couple of times it, it has these set pieces. The one that I remember most vividly is the cutaway model of the prison where you sort of, I don't want to give anything away. I mean, not that there's much to give away, but there's this moment of sort of serenity at the end of the evening in the prison in which you see the warden about to go to sleep, having put to bed a prison that is no longer internally filled with violence and rife, thanks to a talking bear. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, you, and, and, the, and the camera pans over to this little cutaway model size of the prison that he has, basically, I guess, to know sort of where every room is or something. And you enter into the cutaway model, and all of a sudden, the escape plan takes place in the cutaway model with the live action figures. I mean, it, it goes in and out of real and surreal in this super confident way. The production design is wonderful. You're in, in what, you're in what manages to be both a very real and very fake world at the same time without, being, without it mixing in a surreal or trippy way at all. It's just fanciful. Um, I love this screenplay. It is a perfectly executed three-act screenplay with loaded, Dana, with Chico what I call Chekhovian guns, right? Like the old Chekhov saw about if you put a gun over the mantelpiece in the beginning of the short story, it's got to go off by the end. You realize as the movie begins heading towards its climax that so much of what you saw in the first third of it was a Chekhovian gun placed above the mantelpiece. They all go off beautifully by the end. Um and it's, it, it, in the end, it lacks any, it's very funny. I, I laughed throughout. Um, uh, it lacks any of the snide jokiness or like kind of faux winky wink worldliness of some movies that are meant to entertain both very little kids and the adults who've taken them to it. You are enjoying it on the exact same plane as a younger child would be. Um, so there's, there's no irony. It's not redeemed by an adult irony at all it has no violence to speak of as, as i recall um and in the end it's just beautifully beautifully executed entertainment okay now that you've described all that though i want to get to dana's like technical question like why isn't it super irritating that it's so sweet i mean what is the tartness like yes there are some jokes but as you say the jokes are not the kind of like lacerating winking acid they're they're of a piece with the with the heart of the film uh, what, what, what is it? Why is it so balanced? It's a great question. I mean, obviously the screenplay is a huge part of it. If the words they were saying were sweet and sentimental or even the music behind them, it's got a really, really great bouncy, sprightly score by Dario Marinelli. It has incredible performances from, I mean, every bit as, as great of a cast as any Harry Potter movie. In fact, many actors that were in the Harry Potter movies, including Imelda Staunton and Jim Broadbent and give me some more names. Every place you look, oh, Julie Walters. Tom Conti. Tom Conti is the judge, a wonderful actor. I've seen too little of him. I personally have seen too little of him over the years. Uh, who else? Um, uh, Brendan Gleeson, Peter Capaldi. Um, Okay, but but as you say, the Harry Potter movies also had this cast of amazing British actors. Having casts of amazing British actors does not prevent movies from being mediocre, as evidenced by the Harry Potter movies. Like, wh Wait why, why is it such now. a perfect <laughs> souffle? 
I've heard some people tweeting ill things about the Harry Potter movies as well, and I would like to stand up for them. Not all of them. I agree that they vary in quality, but one thing that you cannot fault any of the Harry Potter movies with is the acting or the casting. I will no, I'm saying, that of course, they are great. The casting is great, but the movies are only fine and variable and Quaron and yes, yes, yes. But they're not Paddington do, right? Oh, no. Oh, no, absolutely not. But I guess I'm just saying that a huge part of what makes this movie so great is that every cast member is fully into it. Like Hugh Grant has never, mm-hmm. ever been better in a movie yeah, to my mind. I, I mean, I want this guy, I want this villain to have his own spinoff series. Phoenix Buchanan is the villain's name. <laughs> yes, He's so, so delightful. He's this very vain actor. Well, I mean, I think maybe also a part of it is that this movie is so deeply moral, right? Like the, the, Opposition that it sets up between the villain and the hero, which sounds so ridiculous, has so much moral profundity, right? There's this incredibly vain actor who is kind of Trumpian in a way, except that he's delightful to watch and fun because he thinks that the world revolves around him. He doesn't like to perform with anyone else. There's this ongoing joke about how he only does solo acts and is trying to constantly restart his career with these horrible solo shows that no one wants to see. He has this attic full of costumes. He's this master of disguise, and I will not give away how great his disguises are, but you know, he goes up to his attic and talks to his costumes in different accents. He's so bizarre and such a great character, but he is emptiness itself, right? He's only self-regard. And then there's Paddington Bear, whose whole moral premise that he lives by is kindness and politeness will will win everyone over in the end, right? If you just do the right thing and hold the door open for the criminal in jail, then he's going to be won over and be making happy marmalade with you. And it's it's just, it's a beautiful moral. I mean, is it just the times we're living in that that struck me as, as so profound, that opposition? No. And I think also the fact that, I, I, Dana, you're really onto something, which is that it it's the rare movie that elevates good manners to the level of redemptive civility, right? That, that, you know, and it's only become, as you say, more relevant that, that incivility is socially corrosive is the very gently implied flip side of this kind of, you know, magical enchanted mascot figure that comes not only into the family but the neighborhood and allows everything to fit together in this sort of jigsaw perfection you know there's this kind of musical there's this sort of harmonic perfection to the neighborhood when paddington is in it that it begins to lose when he's falsely accused and imprisoned and but that's all subtly done that's the other thing it's like the none of the flavors are allowed to get so strong that you feel as though your response to the movies in any way being forced and it, it's it's a and because it doesn't purport to be taking place in the real world none of its darkness is is very dark at all you understand that this is a heightened and idealized version of what is best about the english without it being um mindlessly patriotic in a way that's meant to sort of bully you into thinking the english are wonderful is that sort of getting at it yeah i think that kind of communitarian spirit versus an isolationist spirit, right? I mean, essentially, um, the Hugh Grant character's motto could be, I alone can act it, right? He wants to do everything himself. He's all alone. He has no no communitarian um, spirit. And the movie has a very light touch just in the sequence where we meet Paddington and he's greeting everybody and helping everybody in the neighborhood and um, just kind of, he's got a little bit of the, um, I think I can quality to him, kind of hardworking, believes in himself, doesn't get too down if he's, uh, if he, if he falls on his death. Um, those things feel 
like a message you want to get behind, but they're done deftly in this kind of fabulistic way. And the other thing that I think might be so striking about it is that the, the, as a half real, half animated movie, it, it, it may be the absence of the kind of horrible uncanny valley or the weird um, stop motion lizardy feeling that you kind of get sometimes with those movies. Like it, it, the, the interface between the bear and the humans is really natural and um, the kind of whimsical, almost Wes Anderson-ish, like the the cutaway details or the, um, I'm thinking of the way that they frame the shot when a nun gets up to no good, for example, which is like kind of a beautiful piece of, I imagine mostly virtual filmmaking, um, that I think that just the impressiveness and the lightness of touch in the way that the story is constructed virtually must be part of what makes it feel like such a balanced either souffle or pot of marmalade. Yeah, the playfulness of the animation is really unusual and and it, it three two one. I'll say that better. Three two one. Yeah, the playfulness of the animation is a huge part of what won me over to this movie. In the specific moment when that first happened, Steve, it's really early on, and it's one of the animation tour de forces in the entire film. And it's the moment that Paddington enters the book. I think you yeah. mentioned it already, enters into the pop-up book with his aunt in his imagination. And there's just yeah. this seamless transition from a world that, as you say, is already fanciful because there's a talking, walking, animated bear living with living actors, right? But it's also a very stylized world, beautiful production design, co- Sally Hawkins costumes. I want them all like these beautiful bright colored patterns everywhere um but at that moment suddenly we're in this different two-dimensional paper cutout universe and the pop-up book itself the kind of macguffin of the movie is this pop-up book that everyone wants because it has a treasure map in it and just the seamlessness of entering that universe made me feel like i'm in good hands this director paul king is going to take me somewhere good and i can just trust him to do so yeah i mean there's also something i i just you know think about the legacy of et and and Spielberg's notion of the nuclear family, which in some ways is is very sentimental, but also very claustrophobic. You know, this magnificent, not real at all creature enters into your home and in E.T. you have to hide it, but it makes you special and you know you have this special thing, but 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 hiding it is paramount. And it's sort of part of that notion of the enchanted, but also claustrophobic space of the nuclear family and i just this movie announces from the beginning this is sort of a special thing about this family but it's shared with the world openly i mean it's just the premise is that there's nothing weird about a talking bear in your life and you know and and there's no reason to hide it the zookeeper's not going to come there's not some sinister government you know guy in a hazmat suit who's going to pop him into a lysine bag and study him it's vocal patterns or you know it's just not it just doesn't have those sort of shadows i think that may be it that that sentimentality is is the false salve for a certain kind of false sinister fake worldly view of the outside world as terrifying and therefore you need to hyper sentimentalize bourgeois family relations in order to compensate for that sinisterness and because there's an open-heartedness here that imagines the world not as it is but but as it might be, as a place where people actually get along and enhance one another's beings, even as semi-strangers, it then doesn't need to buy you off at the end with the bicycles lifting up off the earth and, you know, et cetera, right? I mean, that, that's going to be my Paddington theory for the day. 
So you're saying it's a better like movie it. than E.T.? I think it's a very different movie, and I think its effect is very different. I mean, E.T. Is a, is a masterpiece, but there is something about how the outside world is imagined as sinister and intrusive and run by bureaucrats who want only to steal the enchantment from the world, that enchantment has to be, when you have it, has to somehow be total, total and compensatory and very sentimentalized. And if you don't set up that balance, you don't you know, the ending of Paddington is arguably the only sentimental part of it. But at, at that point, as Dana, as you say, it's fully earned. And it's not meant to compensate for how corroded the cynicism of the rest of the movie is in any way. Right. I mean, and then I would add that the the end sequence, the credit sequence, which I won't give away, even gives the villain this kind of moment where, you know, he's he's definitely the villain. But in a in a strange way, he he finds his place as well. And uh, it's it's completely worth staying to the last second of the end credits. Yeah. And I will say to your question, Dana, I don't know if this is a better movie than E.T., but if you told me I had to queue up one of the two of them right now and watch it, I would definitely rather watch Paddington, too. <laughs> even though you saw it last night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. a pretty great argument right there. No, me too. I can't wait to bring it bring other people in my life into Paddington too. And since we keep on throwing out the praise, I'm just going to say that the one note that I wrote down was is Ben Wishaw giving one of the great animated vocal performances of all time. I mean, he is so completely Paddington. I assume that they must also have done maybe some motion capture and based the bear character on him a little bit. But he just feels so much like that character that it reminded me of, I don't know, Tom Hanks's Woody in the Toy Story movies or Boris Karloff as reading The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. <laughs> you know, just one of those legendary vocal performances that is so tied with the look of the character that you can never separate them. Well, I can honestly say i have never loved you two more i was so afraid you were going to take my teddy bear away from me and leave me alone in the dark (laughs) uh all right guys it's paddington 2 i think the panel is united in their warm gooey love of it so um uh i please if you watch it i ask only one thing that you email us and tell us what your experience was like all right moving on Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance— Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right. Over the last few days, we've seen the iHeart Living Room Concert for America and the Home Fest, uh, the first 
hosted by Elton John, the second by James Corden. These are, I don't know what to call them exactly, very old-fashioned things in very newfangled garb in a way, telethons, variety shows, utilizing video conferencing to beam self-isolating musicians and other celebrities into our self-isolated households via Wi-Fi and laptops. Uh, I watch the iHeartRadio Music Awards. You guys watch the um, Home Fest. Why don't we start there? What did uh, What did I miss, Dana? Uh, the Home Fest was James Corden from his garage uh, talking to a bunch of people via computers all over the world and having them on to sing their song, do their comedy, do their bit. Um, Julia, you can maybe talk to more of it than I can because I could not make it through the whole thing. I think what made me the most annoyed about the show, and I'm not even a Corden hater. I know there are people out there who can't even stand the sight or sound of James Corden, but since I live with a young Broadway nerd, I <laughs> I have grown to love him in my way. Um, but I think what most bugged me about this show was how little it framed itself as uh, a fundraiser or a telethon. It's, there were a couple of times that charities were mentioned, and then there was some talk about, oh, donate to the charity of your choice, and here's a couple good ideas or something. But in general, I would say that this show, along with many other celebrity from home contributions since the quarantine began, seem very focused on everybody needs my entertainment and not everybody needs my money. <laughs> and that's what I think these shows <laughs> should primarily be focused on. So while I welcome the gesture of goodwill that was James Corden doing this show, even if it was, for my taste, pretty corny, I think that it, I would have been much happier to just hear James Corden gives $2 million to X Foundation to actually help people. Is that cynical of me, Julia? No, I mean, I will also say that James Corden may have fine qualities, and I do think Carpool Karaoke is entertaining, and I think his love of music is... Uh, fine and that he's an okay MC of certain things at some points. He was not a good America's dad in this, you know, the whole thing of like, I'm reach, I'm a comfortable voice. And I usually, I just make you laugh with japes, but tonight I'm going to talk about a very serious thing. Oh, he was terrible. Like he just, his, his sort of treacly, like at this moment, we must reach out and connect and believe and give. like, yes, I understand that that's a good idea, but, uh, it, it, it all of those pieces felt straining. Um, it just felt very strained and very almost insincere, which I know they're incredibly sincere, but somehow I think usually when, a late night entertainer goes into like, let me tell you about serious issue in my life, serious political thing. I finally want to break the unspoken rule of late night and talk about, um, they, you know, they, they, there's a contrast to their normal personality that helps you think, whoa, it's unusual to hear, you know, John Stewart or Letterman or Colbert or somebody talking to me with this level of sincerity and gravity. And with Corden, it's just kind of his typical, register, I think, to be a bit kind of straightforward and schmaltzy and emotional. So I did not enjoy him as the MC. I'm very curious, Steve, for your view of how Elton John did. The performances were, on the one hand, kind of fun. And on the other hand, like, I'm spending my whole day looking at Zoom Brady Bunch grids of people on Zoom. And it's work all day. And you got your Zoom cocktail hours with your far-flung friends at night. And then suddenly, like, Dua Lipa and a bunch of dancers are um, Zooming around. 
But I thought some of the performances were very moving. I thought the Andrea Bocelli um, performance from Italy was really moving. I thought, uh, you know, it, 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 it's also just fun. Like one of the side effects of this whole thing is that eavesdropping on, spying on, peeping, tomming on, um, you know, feeling like you're peeking behind the curtain into celebrities' homes and then how they're choosing to frame themselves within their homes is is kind of endlessly fascinating. So I found myself moved by Andrea Bocelli's extraordinary singing and then like thinking about his potted plants, like really interesting, but there's just two potted plants there behind him. <laughs> so there is a certain like voyeuristic pleasure. Yeah, I think my only comment on the performances in that James Corden special is why are the boys from BTS dancing so close together <laughs> while singing to us all about the importance of social distancing? It was very worrisome to see all these cute They're young quarant- Korean boys. It- they explained that they're isolating together. So one person, and, and and it arrived in Korea sooner. So maybe they've just all been in the same germ pod for <laughs> for many weeks. That that's, was probably that's like my, a, a governmental that was my edict. assumption. Isolate BTS immediately <laughs> in a germ-free facility. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, oh. I have I have friends of my daughter, you know, preteen types who are huge BTS fans and love BTS. So it was really fun to see them perform. I have to admit that they didn't strike me as that much more than your typical pretty good boy band but you know very sweet bunch and uh i'm glad they're thinking about why they're dancing within two feet of each other i'm relieved to know um i will say that i think this is a role that sir elton was maybe not born for but has has lived a life that groomed him for it i mean he comes to us from sort of above and beyond you know uh and apart somehow he's just so eminent now as to exist almost everywhere and nowhere at once and um you know and and he he was i thought quite dignified and and you know unintrusive and it was his job just just to sort of introduce in a relatively high-minded but generic way each one of the acts i watched half a dozen clips they were all moderately entertaining. I mean, you know, it's 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 fun to see Mariah Carey. You didn't really see the interior of Mariah Carey's house, but you heard her with relatively, you know, relatively unadorned by studio effects sing, and her pipes are just unreal. It sometimes maybe gets forgotten in all the Michigas that surrounded her life and career. She's just an astonishing vocal performer, and then that was amazing. The Backstreet Boys were fun. It was interesting to see them each in their own self-isolated germ pod, Julia, as you say. Um, nonetheless, blending their voices together. It was a little shaggy, but that made it charming. Um, Dave Grohl should never pick up an acoustic guitar ever again and sing. Um, uh, And um, uh, Billie Eilish is just, you know, her, the moment that she's having just continues. I mean, she's marvelous. She's slouching on a sofa, presumably at home. Um, I'm not sure if that was her brother. I'm sorry, but just on acoustic guitar, accompanied by a young gentleman on acoustic guitar, she does her hit. And, she she just she's just doing this remarkable thing that 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 only she she can get away with but she certainly gets away with it which is sort of be singing but not singing be performing but not performing being both herself and a persona being a slouchy teen but a you know woman woman of the world or becoming a woman of the world um and she's just the talent is pouring off of her like sweat off a prize fighter right now. And, um, and she knows it and can be blase and hook you nonetheless. That was, that was a tremendous performance and it was enhanced by the format, right? It was just a a guitar and a mic was pointed at the two of them and she's on the sofa and she's doing a kind of low key murmur croon that sounds out of the 1920s and out of the 2020s at once. It was a great performance that she was the only person I think who walked away affirming your sense that she's just 
you know, a ma- magnificent person in the in the the full flush of her, you know, first flush of her fame. Um, but you know, in terms of, I think this opens to the larger question of the segment, which is which is in part spurred on by an interesting piece by Amanda Hess in the New York Times, whose whose uh, uh, headline was "Celebrity Culture Is Burning." and whose subhead was the pandemic has disrupted relations among the masses, the elites, and the celebrities who liaise between them. Uh, Dana, you seem to have really responded to that piece of writing. Maybe talk a little bit about why. Yeah, I think Amanda Hess just put words to something I've been thinking about, as many have, I'm sure, in this whole time. I mean, the Imagine video that Gal Gadot released, the you know crowdsourced people who can't sing singing together, was maybe the, the first example of this. But these glimpses that we're now getting into the private life of celebrities, I mean, her argument is, is essentially like, this is the end of celebrity. And after all this is over, we are going to have lost our um, our obsession with the private lives of the rich and famous. I don't know if something that's that deep seated in the American consciousness can really be uh, unseated that fast. But, but I definitely regard every single one of those glimpses inside a celebrity home as in essence, like a piece of, of real estate envy, you know, and even as someone who is lucky enough to, to live in a n- nice apartment, a place that I love, just seeing people sort of flaunt their wealth without even trying to flaunt it and kind of try to place themselves as one of the people as they luxuriate in mansions and have huge cushions that they could be helping the rest of the world with. I mean, this is just going back to what I was saying about the Corden thing should have been a fundraiser. If we really want to be in emergency mode, we should not be fetishizing our um, comfort or discomfort in our houses. You know, we should be helping people that don't have houses or might lose their houses because they don't have any more money. And Amanda has gets into some of the specifics of those, you know, like Ellen DeGeneres whining about feeling confined as she's, you know, lounging in some some giant place. And then you see it happening amongst the celebrities themselves, right? I mean, the idea that everybody in the Imagine video seemed to think, oh, we're really sharing something together. And maybe they it was important to them to make it, but maybe they should have just shared it with their friends and family and not the rest of us poor mortals who are not in that stratosphere, right? And I read something about, I guess, Jimmy, Jimmy Fallon did some sort of work from home deal, or maybe he just appeared in that Imagine video. I don't know. But anyway, James Corden was making some joke about emailing Jimmy Fallon to say, oh, I'm so envious of your house. And and to me, the obliviousness of not realizing how that falls on the ears of, you know, people who do not live in anything like either one of their homes, it just, it's so discordant. Yeah. I mean, I, I first of all, I want to say I like the Amanda Hess piece and it got me thinking about this in ways that I was grateful, you know, to be, to be, you know, motivated to do. I will say that, you know, celebrity culture has probably been ending since the beginning of celebrity culture. And in my own lifetime, I mean, I can just rattle them right off, you know, the 87 crash, the first Iraq war, the, you know, dot com bust, uh, 9-11, second Iraq war. Uh, You know, every one of these is moralized as a possible end to celebrity culture. I don't think celebrity culture is ever going to end. It does mutate and it will be interesting. And social media, right? Social media is going to undo the power of Us Magazine and people. And, you know, it's going to be two warts and all, or people are going to be their own celebrities. I mean, and yet what happens, people become influencers. They become celebrities via social media. Celebrities adapt to social media. It's, it's very, it's very, fluid is very ad- adaptive uh and um and it's 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 it it will mutate in its own way to include this moment and its aftermath though julia i think that that's that that's the interesting question i mean part of hess's argument is that mediating between relatively ordinary the rest of us and the very mostly very hidden 0.001% who own and run the world 
are these super public figures whose lifestyles we're supposed to gawp at and emulate. And, and, you know, that's her point is that these people are sort of liaisons between our sense of self and our aspirations and a largely invisible world of the really, really, really rich. And, and our feelings about that might be subject to change in a world that for the first time, arguably since the end of the depression of the second world war, everyone is feeling the same really tragic, really disruptive, cataclysmic public event at the same time. And in some respects, equally enough, its pain is going to be distributed. Pain is going to be distributed, you know, grotesquely unequally, but at some level also more equally than maybe other, the pain of other events has been felt that, that, that in the, in the spirit of shared sacrifice and, and just the hand of fate descending on us, in this way, we may not be able to return to that kind of gawpy credulity that, that that sustains celebrity culture. I wonder about that. I doubt it. But what do you think? Oh, we'll have it forever. We'll have it forever. Celebrities yeah. aren't going anywhere. But I do think the general kind of intimacy with celebrities' lives that's already emerged, right? It's not some magazine writer gets paid two bucks a word to take someone out for a kale salad and describe the exact angle of the fork <laughs> and craft a souffle of... Um, you know, of celebrity persona, but the celebrities have cut out the middlemen and and can send us their own Instagrams. But they're all using Facetune, and they all have the same contour on, and they are all, um, you know, photoshopping their legs to have thigh gap. Like, there is a sort of <laughs> raffishness of the, you know, I, I enjoyed how in the James Corden segment, uh, Chrissy Teigen, John Legend's wife, came on at the beginning, didn't know which camera to look at, framed herself wrong, so her forehead was cut off, um, and just kind of, they look, you know, that this is their whole shtick, being America's most glamorous couple next door, but they, you know, they just looked like people at home having fun. It Wouldn't it be fun to be cooped up with Chrissy Teigen? Seems like some people would think, given how much people like her on, uh, on Twitter. Um, so there is something pleasant about seeing you know, in the same way that it's pleasant to see your colleagues like cattails swishing across the back of a video conference, feeling like you're getting an extra glimpse into their lives. But then what the glimpse reveals is something that they, I think, in the past have been more able to edit out, which is just how different their lives are and how much privilege comes with with all of the other facets of their fame. And I think that's what's so striking about this moment, the the physical toll, right, the the disease will not discriminate between rich and poor, at least at the outset before everybody's aware of it. Um, and in the initial blow, anybody can get sick, anybody can die, and and we're starting to see that as the as the um, numbers of diagnoses and deaths start to mount. But on the other hand, people's ability to then protect themselves from further infection has to do very much with where they are on the economic total po- totem pole. The comfort with which they spend whatever time we're asked to spend cooped up is, you know, much greater. They have outdoors, they have places to go and places to be and options and money. And, you know, so the kind of we're all in this together initial blow of like, holy moly, the world has changed and it it spares no one is beginning to turn into it spares no one, but some people have it a lot better than others. Right, right. And then the economic and- blow of 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 this cataclysmic, I mean, just, you know, four times more than the than any pri- previously recorded jobless numbers last week, that's only going to continue. 
Um, I mean, in some ways that will start to affect some of their lives, right? They won't be paid for to be on TV shows, um, but their stores of savings and insulation from really being um, hit economically are just so much greater. And I think that's why, Dana, your point of like, why aren't you all talking about giving money away all the time? (laughs) Like, Why don't you just like throw that potted plant out the window in 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 an active giving in some way. I mean, that wouldn't actually make any sense, but you know what I mean? Like, I, I think that's part of why it felt so. No, I, it's, yes, it's nice to see Billie Eilish and and her performance on the Corden show too was nice. It's kind of great that she's the one who did both. Um, but yeah, just, just show us where you sent your money. Yeah. If there's not some recognition of that basic inequality, just the vast income inequality gap in their performances, then to me, their performances lose their moral weight. And it seems like Corden could have realized that. Like, why not have each celebrity before they do their performance say, hey, it's great to be with you. I'm about to do this song, comedy, whatever. But here is my charity. (laughs) You know, I want you all to donate to my food bank in my hometown. And then the next guy says, I want you all to donate to, you know, whatever, like Meals on Wheels. I mean, it would have been so easy to just mandate that as part of the show. And I, I just I don't understand the choice to not do that and make it this free floating thing like we all got to help each other. And that kind of might include giving some money to someone as part of your general helpiness. You know, like this is emergency mode. Let's let's get some some right. URLs up there. Right. I mean, here's where I come out on this. And this is sort of thinking out loud that I mean, you know, celebrity culture is based on a very human deep-seated instinct to elevate some people above others and then make them the object of fascination, awe, you know, uh, vengeful fantasies. I mean, all kinds of things. But, you know, it's just every society I have to imagine since the beginning of time has done this to a select group of people. Whereas the moral dilemma we may be about to face is the ultimately serious one, which is how to actually triage actual patients, many of whom are going to die inevitably and you are going to be distributing ventilators i mean not i really don't want to i really don't want to bring the show down by thinking about this but the point is a different a totally totally distinct form of moral calculus about human worth is and human possibility is going to have to enter into if things go as badly as they might as they already have in italy and presumably in wuhan a different kind of sense of human worth is going to be brought to bear. And the only thing I would say, and I don't mean this to be moralizing at all, it really is just an observation, is that in a society that has not faced shared sacrifices or randomly distributed sacrifices for a long time, celebrity culture takes on a certain kind of quality. You know, it elevates more unthinkingly and more credulously, I think, than it might otherwise. And I suspect that there will be some kind of a change, like a really notable change, if, God forbid, this event takes on its most, you know, destructive proportions. And I pray to God that it doesn't. But Julia, I just want to be clear, I am so rooting for us to go back to our shallowness and credulousness because we cope, you know, brilliantly and efficiently with this this horrible epidemic. Yeah, and I, I, for all that they haven't gotten the tone right yet, and in some ways the Corden show felt like it was the tone of last week hitting us this week somehow, like the the shock of the new rather than the settling in of the slog. Um, it is good that all of these talented people, talented to varying degrees, but mostly quite talented, 
want to help and they're going to have plenty of time to figure out how to do it. And I'm sure they will get there eventually. And I hope we all will too. All right. Well, this is, um, this is a real mixture of heavy and light and, uh, we're living in tough times, but, uh, this is, a uh, one of those ones I'd love to hear from our listeners, what you think about celebrity culture, your own relationship to isolating and facing a pandemic is to, you know, the famous people who help us forget about shit. Anyway, moving on. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. Dana. Stephen, I am going to, as promised last week, stick only with um, happy, joyous things, gentle things that are helping me get by. And uh, this is some a singer that I have endorsed before on the show, but I think it was a specific performance of a specific song, which is not on this album that I'm about to endorse. And the singer is Julie London. Are y'all familiar with Julie London? Wonderful 50s chanteuse. no. Oh. oh my God, the smoky sexiness of Julie London and her incredibly restrained delivery. And she is also this gorgeous kitten-like, just absolute glamour cat. Um, and she came up, I think I basically discovered her through, you know, playlists and mixes. And I'd be listening to, I don't know, uh, Joe Stafford or Dinah Washington or one of those great standards vocalists from the that period, the mid-century period. And then up would come Julie London's voice. And she has this very, very particular voice. Maybe we can use some of her for an outro so you can hear it. But she just delivers a great standard. The song by her that I had previously endorsed on the show was uh, My Heart Belongs to Daddy, which is this, you know, in our current culture, somewhat problematic song about, you know, a daddy about having a maybe sugar daddy and uh, sort of kissing up to him. But it's a very sweet song and she delivers it like nobody else. But it is not on this particular album, which is called Julie is Her Name. It was the first full length album by Julie London released in 1955. And it's just full of great standards. She sings Cry Me a River. She sings uh, I'm in the Mood for Love and uh, Swonderful, the great Gershwin tune. Uh, songs by Johnny Mercer, Irving Berlin, Cole Porter, just, you know, that that kind of music, but sung by this very particular smoky lady with um with very spare arrangements and i love her so julie london julie is her name next time you are cooking up some sort of quarantine dinner and you just want to pretend that you're in a nightclub in an old movie put on Mm. her name is julie that sounds pleasing oh i'm sold oh that's awesome uh julia what do you have all right i have a very serendipitous endorsement we were given for the boys birthday a game called husker dusker have you played Husker Dusker? I have not played anything. There is just <laughs> a, a ravening silence on the call. Okay. Husker Dusker is like a very modest backyard game. You know, if you're a family that likes cornhole, I would say this is in a similar vein. Um, and it essentially turns tug of war from a game of brute strength into a game of strategy, balance, and finesse because it gives you like a block. Like it looks like something you'd have in a, you know, step aerobics class that you that probably is four, four inches off the ground. You balance on one foot on the block and then you have a very like soft, tender, not hard on your hands, big rope. And your opposite... Um, you know, your, your counterpart, you're each balancing, you're trying to pull and you just try to get someone off of the block to have to put their other foot down or their foot down on the ground. And it's so fun. Like we got it. We're like, Oh, cool. And then we are obsessed and the family plays it all the time and the boys really like it. And it's really good for like balance and gross motor. And it's really fun. And it, 
and and there's like a bit of kind of strategy and if you don't pull the rope too hard and anyway it's a delightful backyard game that i'd never even heard of who's Kerdusker? I'm confused by the name. So it's like Husker Du, the band, but with an extra skur at the end. Didn't really get into the etymology of the name. It requires you to shout Husker to start every turn. And then if you get someone, if you get your opponent to fall off, you shout Dusker. And then (laughs) should you get them to fall off three times, thus winning a bout, you shout Husker Dusker in victory. I can't say why, but it works. I just hope that Bob Mould of Husker Du is getting some sort of royalties from the release of this game. For all I know, this is his game. You know, I, we Thanks, couldn't Bob. possibly research it and ascertain. But um, yeah, it's, uh, let's just assume that's the case. Um, all right. Well, I have uh, two very quick endorsements. The first is uh, I'm, gonna, I'm sure I'm going to hear an amen from the choir here. But um, one of my favorite Times journalists forever now is Genia Belafonte. Uh, she's just such a great columnist and she writes about New York City. I think her column may be called Big City. She has a marvelous one called They Survived the Spanish Flu, the Depression, and the Holocaust. Two extraordinary women, one 101, the other 95, lived through the worst of the 20th century and they have some advice for you. I don't want to spoil it. You must read this. It is, it's just, it's the antidote to the Tiger King. Your jaw's on the floor, but in a good way. You feel a towering admiration for both of these women and their enormous powers of, of resilience um, and wisdom and courage. Uh, and it's a beautifully done column. She's been doing great work. She's been doing great work for decades or whatever, a decade or 20 years, however long it's been. But this recently in the, in the pandemic, as it's hitting the city, New York City, uh, Eugenia Belafonte is doing amazing work. We'll link to it. And then I found a Frost poem that I didn't know the other day, and it is already one of my favorites. It's called A Star in a Stone Boat. Do either one of you know this poem? Do not. Um, a, Please read it in your in your Frost voice, I beg of you. There's the, the one thing you need to know going in is that a stone boat, essentially farmers would clear their fields of trees, but then they also had to clear them of... Um, of boulders, basically things that you were too stones that were too large to plow over. And this is before the internal combustion engine, you would have a kind of big sled almost uh, hooked up to an oxen or a horse. And it was a stone boat and you used to just load it up with these stones. But then what you would do is the ones that were the right size and rough shape you would use to build your stone walls on the perimeter of the field. So that's what a stone boat is. And the conceit of the poem is that some of the stones, the poet walks along these stone walls and some of them are fallen stars or meteors. Um, And so it's such an amazing poem, Dana. Oh my God, you've got to read it. Just the conceit has already got me. It's so frost, right? And it's, it's, um, it begins this way. It says, never tell me that not one star of all that slip from heaven at night and softly fall has been picked up with stones to build a wall. Some laborer found one faded and stone cold and saving that its weight suggested gold and tugged it from his first too certain hold. He noticed nothing in it to remark. He was not used to handling stars thrown dark and lifeless from an interrupted arc. He did not recognize in that smooth coal the one thing palpable besides the soul to penetrate the air in which we roll. And it goes from there. I mean, it's like it just gets it gets better and it just works to this. I mean, he just is a magnificent genius. It's, it's just too bad that he's misunderstood as this kind of all-American Yankee, you know, I don't know, you know, Cracker Barrel type when when he really was so sly and so odd. 
Um, but I love that poem and we'll link to that as well. Oh, that was such a good reading of it. I must read the whole thing. Belongs to somebody else. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Stephen. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And of course, you can email us. I love it. I'll say it every week at culturefest at slate.com. We do have a Twitter feed that's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Jessamine Molly. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. For Sam Adams, Daniel Schrader, Julia Turner, and Dana Stevens, I am Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and stay safe, and we will see you soon. And you can bet they're not so cold for somebody else. It's tough to be alone on a shelf. It's worse to fall in love by yourself. The one I love belongs to somebody else. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.